Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to episode 11 of the podcast. I apologize that today's intro sounds very odd. I'm sitting in a hotel room on a business trip in Las Vegas right now, and I didn't take my fancy microphone. Shame on me. Today we're continuing our series on violence in media, and we're also talking about sentient spiders in sci-fi, cute dragons in fantasy, and the nature of evil. I also touch on the strange tendency for modern storytellers to prefer to take the potentially dangerous position of devil's advocate. This is another oldie from a Facebook Live I did a few years ago, but it's still very relevant to our cultural climate. Today's show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. They are the backbone of my work. They inspire me and keep me creating. If you'd like to support this show, you can join for $2 a month and get access to early live-streamed recordings, which include exclusive Q&A sessions afterwards. This community also has higher tiers that include things like free ebooks for life, merch, and exclusive experimental short fiction written by yours truly. I also occasionally give special gifts to my patrons, including a few free audiobook codes recently for the complete Raven Sun series in audiobook. Visit patreon.com forward slash Nicholas Kotar to find out more. And if you enjoy the podcast, I'd be very grateful if you left a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It does help other people discover this podcast, especially in the early stages of its existence. And thank you to those who have already done so. And now, on to today's show. So today, I want to talk about dragons. The cute ones, and maybe the not-so-cute ones, too. Uh, this conversation occurred to me, or this topic occurred to me, uh, not a, a little while back, because at the Amon Sul podcast Facebook page, there was an interesting discussion going on. Uh, one of the moderators had uh, raised the question, why in our time is it so popular to imagine creatures that were traditionally considered horrible and monstrous and who were uh, objects of fear, especially dragons, zombies, vampires, that sort of thing? Why have they become cutified and coddled and kind of uh, an acceptable part of the of the public imagination. What is it about uh, today and modern times that makes uh, a character like Toothless in How to Train a Dragon uh, something normal and not slightly off-putting, while perhaps maybe even 40 or 50 years ago showing a dragon as something cute would have would have probably uh, not so much upset some people as, as turned some people off. So what is it about it? And there was a long, interesting discussion in the comment section of Facebook Unusually interesting, uh, considering the kind of stuff that goes on on Facebook these days. But there were two in particular that I thought were interesting that I, that I wanted to um, talk about specifically. One of them was the following, the, spoken by the wonderful 
Maria Sheehan, who said that she thinks that the reason that we've made monsters cute is because the enemy was more other in the past. Other in quotation marks. Now the sentiment is that anyone could be the enemy. And this zombie phenomenon, specifically, uh, everyone has become the enemy, and even I could become the enemy, is the logical end. The good monsters, then, are the hope that any enemy could be redeemed, even ourselves, if it came to that, because we are the worst monsters possible sometimes. By the way, this phenomenon isn't from kids' stories. It's we adults who are telling these stories to ourselves. It's a very interesting point, Maria Sheehan, if you're here. Um, because, yes, it's true. Uh, in one place... Monsters are never anything but monstrous, and they are never cute. And that is children's stories in fairy tale. In fairy tales, there is absolutely no doubt about the fact that the monster is monstrous. Um, so there's some interesting things about this quote in particular um, that I'll break down in a bit. But here was this, here was another um, comment that I thought was interesting that I really don't really agree with at all. Uh, one of the commenters said, "Why do we equate something that looks scary with evil?" Why do we judge based on outward appearance? I think it is a maturing of perception and a decoupling of appearance from essence and a tearing down of who is deciding what is beautiful, ugly, scary, etc. Um, I have a lot of problems with this statement. Those of you who know me will not be surprised by this fact um, because there is something to be said about the outward appearance being a reflection of the inner reality. Um, we are not... Uh, I don't think it's a very healthy and a very useful way of looking at the world if you separate reality uh, if you separate external reality from the internal uh, essence that creates it um it's not true uh, that what comes out on the outside is not on some level a reflection of what's going on in the inside um this is a very modern phenomenon to try to decouple uh the external from the internal because the whole point of it is that the internal is something that is either so far away from um public consumption and so far away from your experience that you shouldn't even worry about it and eventually what it leads to is this assumption especially among christian humanists that the external is the only thing that exists and the internal level the metaphysical the um the supernatural the transcendent they're nothing more than firing neurons in a specific way that is very specific to you and that has nothing to do with any underlying reality this is a problem so i really don't think um that it is wrong that we judge based on appearances um, and I don't think it's wrong that we judge something as evil based on its being ugly or monstrous. In fact, I think it's quite useful and quite good. But that's an overarching statement and a bit of a generalization. So I wanted to break it down a little bit. And specifically today, I'm going to talk about two books, um, and maybe even maybe more, but specifically two books written by an author named Adrian Tchaikovsky, uh, a man obviously of Russian descent, if not only judging by the name, but judging by the frequent in-jokes that he makes inside his novels that really only um, people of Russian descent can understand. One of which, it's not even in this these particular series of novels that I want to talk about, but he has a character um, in one of his fantasy novels named Rorich, uh, who has disappeared, um, and nobody knows where he is because he's gone on some sort of wild adventure, and, and everybody's been looking for him because he's a wizard and everybody wants him to uh, come and fix things. Um, and the joke is that Nikolai Rerich uh, was a Russian painter who went to Tibet uh, looking for Shangri-La. Actually, went looking for Shangri-La. And I think he died somewhere on his journeys. In fact, he may have, may have disappeared mysteriously. I don't remember exactly. But the in-joke is clear for Russian speakers. So yes, Adrian Tchaikovsky is a Russian. Uh, he, however, um, is a uh, clearly somebody who is more on the side of the... Of the science of more on the side of science 
less on the side of what one might traditionally associate with Russian culture, Russian spirituality, uh, the depth of Russian faith. None of that is present. Um, I don't know much about him personally. But in his science fiction novels, he does seem to be haunted by his Russian past. And that's especially seen in the fact that uh, he constantly refers to um, human beings trying to scale the heights of the gods. Uh, human beings setting themselves up as gods. The series is a very interesting one. It's called Children of Time. That's the first series and the second, the first book. And the second book is Children of Ruin, which just came out recently. Children of Time is a fascinating concept. Basically, uh, there's a group of terraforming humans, extremely advanced scientists in the far future, who had developed a virus that can help uplift, is the word that's used in the text, animals um, from a state of subservience to a state of sentience. Uh, and one of these terraforming humans, whose name is Avrana Kern, she is a very self-centered and very unpleasant person, um, even the author would agree with this statement, who basically has gone off on her own and wants to create her own planet where she's going to deposit a payload of monkeys that she is then going to endow with the gift of sentience over a long period of time, during which, this long period of time, because it's basically evolution, but um, sped up uh, you know, past geological time, which still means it's going to happen over a very long period of time. And she puts herself into cryogenic sleep, but right as she's doing it, she gets hit by a virus coming from old Earth, and old Earth is in the throes of an anti-science fundamentalist movement, of course, because that's what all fundamentalists are, is anti-science, yay! Um, and these anti-scientist fundamentalists, most of whom are probably uh, religious, um, end up sending this burst of energy that kills all technology throughout uh, throughout the solar system, uh, knocking out Avrana Kern's ship and causing her to fall into cryogenic sleep that may or may not kill her. Meantime, the virus comes down to Earth. The monkeys in this uh, explosion of energy have been killed. The virus is floating around in the atmosphere of this new planet that is ripe for life. Uh, oh, there's all these other animals that have been deposited together with the monkeys uh, in order to make the background and the life of the monkeys a little more palatable. Everything from crustaceans in the oceans to fish to, to birds to spiders. And what ends up happening is that the virus chooses the spiders as the most likely candidate for uplift. And then the whole book, uh, half of the book, is from the point of view of the spiders as they slowly become more and more sentient and, a, and become a civilization of their own that uh, has an idea of a god that is orbiting their planet. This is the Avrana Kern uh, module. She's in a ship. She's, she's alive, but possibly not. That keeps sending them electronic messages that they can't decode because the messages are in human speech. Um, or in mathematics, maybe. In any case, the, the spiders don't understand it. They have a different way of speaking. They speak with their feet and they gesture with their palps. The specific um, uh, species that becomes uplifted is a species of hunting jumping spider, which leads to a, actually an absolutely fascinating exploration of a female-dominated society of hunters where the men are subservient. And it, go <laughs> it goes through this massive change where eventually the men feel that they are... Um, empowered enough to actually hold positions of authority uh, while still naturally being cowed by the greater superiority of the women. Naturally, this is a uh, commentary on um, a certain view of modern society and all that, but it's where everything's inverted, but it, it, makes for, it makes for entertaining reading. In any case, what's interesting is that in order to make the spiders, which are spiders and monstrous and ugly and frightening, um, like most people will agree, I'm not an arachnophobe, but I can appreciate the 
beauty of a spider as a created thing. However, I will not look at it and claim that it is something that is beautiful to contemplate. Um, it's not. It's a, it's a monstrous thing, especially when it's large. I mean, these things, they, they mutate and become the size of, you know, like that, you know, and that kind of thing jumping on you. Yeah, that's the that's fodder for horror movies, not uh, the contemplation of the beautiful and harmonious in nature. So in order to make the these monsters palatable for the reader, the author makes the villains humans. And it's a very risky choice because basically he has one or two sympathetic humans. What happens is that thousands of years after the, the fundamentalist anti-science people destroy everything, humanity has crawled back up to the surface of, of the space age and they're once again trying to reach out into the stars and they're in a, they're in a generation ship called uh, the um, Gilgamesh. Yes, called the Gilgamesh. And the, the people who run it are insane and they go through various stages of trying to, uh, basically letting humanity's worst possible instincts come out and they're tamped down, tampered down and controlled by two characters, a man and a woman who are the only sort of normal ones on the ship. And it goes, it goes from everything to sort of delusions of, of self-deification to absolute like tribal bestiality. I mean, like total, total insanity. And the humans are basically killing themselves and it's, and it's a wonder that they survive so long as they do. But eventually this small, tiny remnant on a decaying generation ship arrives in in the vicinity of Avrana Kern's world where there are sentient spiders. And they come out and they, they're freaked out. They start killing all the spiders and start shooting them and they don't know, they don't know what to do. They don't know how, how they're going to survive this. And it takes, a, it takes a stroke of genius on the parts of the spiders who inject the humans with the same virus that the humans injected the um, spiders with uh, to then change their uh, perspective on the universe and to see the spiders not as other but as friend, and they cease to be monstrous and they start becoming allies. Makes it for a fascinating, very interesting story. Um, but what's more interesting is the sequel, which is called Children of Ruin. In, this, in the sequel, uh, we look at some of the other um, members of the terraforming team that Avrana Kern was, was part of, or was rather the head of. And one of them has a um, very special kind of pet. He likes octopuses. He thinks octopuses are absolutely the greatest thing ever. They are his only friends. He's He really prefers the company of octopuses to the company of humans. And he slowly and very gently manipulates them uh, genetically by uh, giving them doses of the same virus and making them more and more sentient. Uh, there's a series of accidents and, and disasters, one of which is that they actually find an alien planet. And in this series, this is the first encounter with alien life. And on this alien planet, there is some kind of presence. They can't figure out what it is, but it's it's clearly malevolent, and it begins to um, show itself by literally possessing the minds of the human members um, of the terraforming team. And here, the books, which in the first uh, the first book of the series was pure hard sci-fi, um, it was an exploration of what it, what it meant to be a person, what civilization was, how, what humanity means, what it means to, um, you know, where does, where does God fit into all this? It's a very interesting philosophical novel. Um, a lot of the uh, conclusions of which I couldn't uh, agree with, but still it was, it was a very exciting, very interesting book that I enjoyed a lot. This one just went straight into horror where you, the kind of 
space horror tropes where you have kind of bodies that are twitching and there's something inside them and just it's you know you're just expecting the alien to sprout from their chest it doesn't but because it it starts to possess um, this thing which is some sort of a sentient ooze begins to possess everything that it comes into contact with and in a kind of hive mind so it's kind of a combination of alien um the borg and i don't know name me some horror movie about ooze like taking people's forms that was a thing the thing i can't remember it's one of those john Carpenter movies in the 80s that was terrible that i hated but something like that right so there's a lot of troping in this second book it kind of just instead of going to an original story it kind of just cycles through all of the sci-fi and fantasy tropes and kind of sheds new light into them but what it was a it's a fantastic read i listened to it on audiobook it was really really interesting and i was really involved and i was freaked out and it was doing everything it was supposed to do adrian tchaikovsky is a fantastic writer but then somewhere around the middle, oh yeah, by the way, the octopuses become sentient and they have this completely insane, uh, extremely chaotic, just like you like you would expect from an octopus, who are very combative as a species. They're, they're solitary. They don't like to be in groups. Their arms seem to be separated from their brains. So they effectively develop two nerves and two nerve centers. The, the brain, which is interested in poetry and art and higher abstract thinking, and their legs, which are run by a different brain that is entirely mathematical and, and uh, controls the world around them. And the two, the head brain and the arm brain, are only basically connect, although barely connected and they don't really talk to each other. It's fascinating. And so these huge, they, have, they develop these huge ships. Um, the octopuses do. They're filled with water and they can signal colors the way that the octopus skin signals colors too because that's the only way they can really communicate is by posturing and by colors it's really interesting but they are invaded by the same ooze sentient slime mold possessing thing which is awful because it's it's cosmic horror you look at this thing you can't understand it it absorbs you into itself and it tries to become you and it can't and it in no way allows you to preserve your individuality it's like the Everything that, that is absolutely the worst, the most monstrous, the most horrifying that you can imagine, it's there and it's going to get you. And it's awful. Uh, from a Christian perspective, this is like a sci-fi version of demonic possession. It really is. And it makes it makes it very effective and dramatic fiction because you're looking at this and you're like, yeah, I mean, it's stuff from nightmares. It's And if you, if you, appreci- if you can appreciate horror for what it is, which is a kind of um, reality check about what is possible in the world about what is important in the world and how you retain your humanity in terrible conditions um not all horrors like this but the good stuff the good ones are um this is very much like that so it's 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 enjoyable but halfway through the book i'm like wait a minute this is going in in a weird direction i'm starting to get a sense that more and more we're getting into the point of view of the ooze and it's starting to sound less and less um frightening and horrifying and we're starting to go into the point of view and trying to understand how it is that this hive mind slime mold that absorbs everything and accesses their brains and begins to sort of take over how it works and starting to empathize with them right around the middle of the book and the whole excitement and horror element of it starts to fade away and i'm like wait a minute what is going on here and it's exactly what i thought at the end of the book what is basically it comes down to giving the slime mold a choice and showing the slime mold the error of its ways and basically the only person who can do this is avrana kern who is a now an implant in somebody's brain um, and she communicates with the slime mold on the level of molecular communication and she 
basically shows a simulation to the slime mold of what will happen when the slime mold takes over the whole universe and makes the universe like itself. And it will be left with itself, by itself, for all eternity. And the thing that it wants more than anything, which is to have an adventure, uh, which is really scary when it keeps saying, like, these bodies that are possessed are twitching and they're going, let's go on an adventure. It's really scary. Um, and so Veronica Kern offers the slime mold this vision of the future. And the slime mold sees itself as this all-encompassing, all-absorbing entity. And it repents of its ways. And it decides, I will no longer do this. I will no longer be the slime mold that absorbs everything. But I will allow for the individuals that I come into contact with to keep their individuality. And in the end, without saying too much, without spoiling everything, basically, they're all living happily ever after, including the sentient slime mold ooze evil possession thing, uh, because it is capable of being the ultimate translator because it can absorb information on the level of molecules. So it can help with expanding their reach of the universe. And so they go off on this massive trip of exploring the stars and finding out all this exciting adventures out in the world. All together, the one happy family of the slime mold, the octopuses, the spiders, and humans. And no, nothing is monstrous and nothing's horrible and everything is wonderful and let's all go have a nice time. The ending was crap. Excuse me, it was garbage. I didn't like it. It was dumb. It took an excellent premise, an excellent setup, and infused it with um, a very weird and a very silly ideology that no longer, that completely undercut all of the dramatic arc. It made all of the choices, all of the journeys, all of the character motivations um, into nothing because ultimately it was all about giving a choice to a monster and allowing the monster to choose to be good because as soon as you offer the bad thing to see what what life really is like, then it's going to be fine. Now, this is a very interesting temptation that we see in modern popular culture. Basically, this is, I've written about this before, but this is the, um, the temptation to, um, the minimization of all monstrosity and all evil to nothing but a lack of tolerant understanding. And as long as we could sit down in a room, let's say with the jihadis from ISIS, and if we could just explain to them how their worldview stinks and our Western worldview is so superior to theirs, then of course they would just drop all their weapons and come running to us, right? No, <laughs> that's not how the world works. And this, in a lot of pop culture, we do have this, this assumption that evil really isn't evil, that all it is is a misunderstanding on one side or the other, or probably both. And what we need to do is to sit around the table and talk. Now, all you have to do now is to spend any amount of time on Facebook talking about politics to know that that is completely, complete nonsense and completely impossible. Of course, that's not, that's, I'm kind of skirting the problem of monstrosity and the problem of ugliness and the problem of evil. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But this book and this and this series, for all its positives, really undercuts itself by, by implicitly suggesting that there is no such thing as the monstrous. There's no such thing as a monster in your bed. There's no such thing as evil. And all it is is misunderstanding. It's a, it's a lack of translation software. So if only you had the universal translator, like in Star Trek, everything would be okay. This is very much a TNG at the next generation view of the world, even though towards the later series, 
uh, later seasons of Next Generation, it kind of woke up to the fact that you can only be, you know, weak, pathetic, diplomat Picard for so long before people get bored and start throwing things at the screen. What they want is actually William Shatner. But anyway, never mind. <laughs> um, some of you uh, will disagree with me on that. But getting back to the whole idea of why do we, why do we, why do so many people try to minimize the ugly ugliness and monstrosity as a reality? What is the deal? Well, it is partially the fact that I think people really want, that people really do see the potential for evil in themselves. And they want to know, like Maria Sheehan said, that they can be redeemed of it. And so it's comforting to see the monster at the end come out to be something that isn't monstrous or for everybody to kind of accept the monster for who he is. Silliness, but this is what people would like because it makes them feel better about themselves. But the thing is, what kind of monstrosity are we talking about? Now take Beauty and the Beast, for example, right? Beauty and the Beast is a very, the beast in Beauty is, a, is in, the, in the story is a very specific kind of monster, right? He is a monster because he has done something bad. The movie shows this beautifully for all of its, you know, Disneyfication uh, of, the, of the original fairy tale. The decadence of the prince is clearly shown. He's not a very nice guy. Um, and it is for his sins that he is punished and that he's made that he is made ugly. And when he becomes virtuous, he becomes beautiful. The, the core message of the fairy tale, which is actually preserved in the Disney uh, film, is there. And it's, and it's wonderful. And it's absolutely right. But that's only one kind of monstrosity. All right. And that's the kind of monstrosity they can apply to us. There's another kind of monstrosity. And that's a monstrosity, uh, an ugliness that is an ugliness of nature. And this assumes that some things are unredeemable, some monsters are just monsters, and you can't fix them. This, you have to have a certain kind of worldview. And in the modern worldview, there's a very strange thing that happens. Um, let me see if, I, if I'm getting this right. Yeah, there's a very strange thing that happens. The thing is, most modern people assume a very interesting thing about human beings. They think that human beings are inherently good. This is something you hear a lot. Now, I, I encounter this often. We all, we all encounter this very often, mostly implicitly, but explicitly in a very interesting um, British show called Silk. It's about lawyers. It has nothing to do with fantasy or science fiction, but it's a good show. At least the first two seasons, but then, then it just descended into melodrama. Um, but basically, these lawyers are faced with the absolute dregs of humanity. They're faced with the worst kind of people that you can imagine. People that do things that are evil without any justification. Not because it's con uh, convenient, not because it's for money, not because it's not because it gives them pleasure, but just because this is who they are. They do this because they have no other choice, or this is how they this is how they express it. It is sort of a natural outflowing of their, of their evil. It's really scary, and despite that, the main character, who is an avowed atheist, um, and has and believes in the process of uh, law as rehabilitation, law of human nature in general repeatedly comes onto screen to say that I believe humanity is inherently good and inherently uh, savable. Now, the problem with that is that the people who show this kind of thing, the people who espouse this kind of uh, worldview, are often the ones that will show evil at its most, um, at its most profound, at its most disturbing, at its most awful. It's it's these past. 10, 20 years that we see the worst expressions of, of violence on, on television and on Netflix and on movies. The most, I mean, look at something like Criminal Minds. I mean, the kind, the kind of depths to which 
some of these crimes show show shows descend to show human depravity is really really scary so much so that you're constantly faced with the reality of how can this be possible and this is an analog in in real life how can it be possible if humanity is inherently good right so what is it that pushes these people and there are only two answers that you can possibly actually three one is a uh, victim of circumstance okay and this is a very popular one in the 19th century um and because of that a lot, a lot of um especially in the late 19th century in russia a lot of people who had done committed terrible acts were often um exonerated of their crimes by uh, juries because they were raised in poverty and they had no other choice. This is a question that's beautifully explored, of course, in Crime and Punishment. Um, and Dostoevsky wouldn't have any of it. He, he said evil was evil. You can't explain it away, right? So that's one thing. Victim of circumstance, which is, you know, all you have to do then is fix the external circumstance, which is a different variation on the theme. Let's all sit around the table and talk about how you know, we can, you know, get along, right? The other one uh, is, um, all right, so the first one is victim of circumstance. Um, the other one is uh, mental illness, okay? So you can't understand what they did. Um, it doesn't make any sense. Something like, I don't know, I'm not making this up. This is in a show somewhere. I, I didn't watch it. I just read about it. Like a mother throwing her toddler over the wall into, an, uh, into a zoo, in a zoo where there's, you know, predatory animals. Um, something like from a possession movie, right? Why does this happen? Well, it could be psychological trauma, right? It could be mental illness, in which case you easily pass it off, you stick that person into a mental institution where they try to fix them, et cetera, et cetera. Problem solved. There is no evil, right? Because this is just neurons that are firing incorrectly. But it still doesn't answer the, the cosmic horror of the why some people who seem to be completely in their right minds, who seem to be not victims of any circumstance at all, do things that are absolutely horrific in an objective sense not horrific because how did this person say it because uh we are the ones who are deciding what is beautiful ugly and scary no like objectively horrifyingly awful right and that's and this is something okay so more and more people are waking up to this fact that you cannot explain any of this unless you agree that there is something that is genuinely evil out there some sort of a force some sort of a something that pushes people to do it and even somebody as clearly not religious as jordan peterson talks about malevolence as a force he he will he goes up and says it constantly you can't just pass it off as victim of circumstance or psychological problems or anything like that there seems to be something that pushes people to be evil sometimes and that something is simmering on under the surface of everybody which is why the monstrous is scary and why it's scariest when it looks similar to us on the one hand the other kind of really really scary something that is so foreign and so alien that you can't explain it and it wants to absorb you it wants to kill you that's another kind of scary it's not evil it's just other right but this denial of evil as something that is uh that is there that is not dependent only on human states or human um circumstances that there's some force out there Christians, of course, would know what to call this, <laughs> um, is naive. And it comes out constantly in, um, in the popular culture of our time. And it actually makes the popular cu culture of our time very often weak. And it, it, because you have to simultaneously hold in your head two contradictory ideas. One, that humanity is inherently good. Two, that humanity is capable of the worst possible kind of evil without it being instigated from outside. 
Those two things happening at the same time are very difficult to make sense. And yet you have to if you don't believe in the devil. Um, so when you have something like Good Omens that, that just came out, I watched the first episode just for the sake of this show, um, I don't know what to tell you. The thing is littered with bad theology. I mean, it's starting from, from the garden all the way to the role of, of angels, the arbitrariness of God, the bureaucratic nature of the heavens, the fact that all the pleasures that we experience on this earth will be wiped away and that heaven will be nothing but boringness. I don't know. Or possibly the sound of music on a loop over and over again because apparently God, who of course is a woman, really likes the sound of music. I mean, <clears throat> I, it's a comedy, yes, but it's a comedy that has a definite worldview and that worldview is not merely um, done for comic effect. It's also done as a satire and all satire is poking fun at something real, yes? Anyway, the only interesting character in the entire series, even based on episode one, is of course the demon who is not really demonic at all. He's just a trickster. He's Loki, all right? Loki is far more popular than Thor for the most part, except maybe in, in um, Thor 3. Thor was hilarious in that one. Love that movie. What is it about the bad guy, the trickster demon that has everybody so attracted? And what is it about the boring, bureaucratic, slightly neurotic, extremely uh, repressed angel that keeps appearing over and over again. And what is it about the arbitrary God who seems to be playing games with humanity for no apparent reason other than for his own or her own or its own fun? Why? And so what is the only thing that can anchor the universe and make it give any meaning? Humanity. Oh, the humanity. Oh, yes. It's us people. Except, of course, these are the same people that insist that humanity is inherently good and also that humanity is capable of the worst possible evil that you can imagine. How do you hold all that in your head all at the same time? You can't. Get a worldview, people. That's all I'm saying, all right? Think about what you mean. And um, I mean, if you enjoy that sort of comedy, go ahead, enjoy it. Uh, I saw one episode of it. I chuckled at some of it. I mean, I thought the satanic uh, order of chattering nuns was kind of clever. Um, but other than that, I mean... Every single scene, I was like, okay, so there's that heresy. And then next next scene, oh, that's two heresies there. Oh, wow, okay, there's like 14 heresies in what he just said right there. Um, so whatever. You enjoy it if you like. I thought it was silly. Um, I thought it just shows a lot of typical facile misconceptions about the nature of evil and the nature of good. Um, if you want an experience of what human depravity um, is capable of and what coming out of complete, utter human depravity might look like without your head being knocked in by any sort of religious propaganda, read Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun about Severian the Torture, the member of the Guild of Torturers, who suddenly starts um, having visions and has starts to have second thoughts about being a torturer. And eventually, um, I'm not going to tell you what, but basically it's, it's the journey from utter absolute darkness um, to something nearing transcendence, but in a way that is not at all preachy, that is very challenging, very fascinating, very beautiful. I think it's great. Um, this is a question that interests me a lot. I write about it a lot in my books. What is the nature of evil? What is evil? How does human evil reside in the, in the human heart? Um, are we all capable of evil? Are we all possibly those 
zombies, those vampires just simmering under the surface. Yes. Um, how do we get out of it? What is what is the way out of it? And what is the what is an interesting way of combating it? What is what is the world's how how in the world are we to encounter evil and how how are we to deal with it in ourselves and in the other people around us? These are things that are very important. These are things that have interested people for centuries. This is what great literature is about. And to see it become like Maria Sheehan says, mere cleverness is sad. Um, because so many millions of dollars are being thrown into these uh, into these shows and, and all that sort of thing. It's it's pathetic. Let's get a little more serious. Let's get, get a little more interesting about this, this issue um, because you could have some really fascinating stories. Um, certainly the nature of evil and, and how it can appear in both monstrous and beautiful forms is something that is very clear in Tolkien's work and it's very clear in his uh, Second Age stories. So if Amazon Prime gets their act together and does it right, then the new series on the Second Age can do this thing really well. Because if you remember, I don't know if you do or not, but if you remember, Sauron actually appears in that series as an angel of light. And people start worshipping him. And they start offering him human sacrifice because he is beautiful and wonderful. He insists this is necessary. It's dark. It's complex. It's fascinating. It is not clever. It is not facile. It's not pathetic. It does not have stupid conversations around the table about how we all misunderstand each other and all we need to do is just talk it all out. I hate that. So go read uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky's books. They're great. I really like them, even if the second one ends in a way that just drives me up the wall. But the process of experiencing that story is wonderful. It really, I mean, it's super imaginative. It's really interesting. Uh, and then go and, like I keep recommending every single time I do a video, go read some Gene Wolfe people, because Gene Wolfe is great. Um, anyway, that's it for today. It's late. It's Monday. I'm tired. The kids are asleep. Time to join them. It's good talking to you all. Um, send me questions. Send me recommendations for reading. Uh, I don't know what we'll talk about next time in about two weeks, but um, probably something about why we create gods in our um, in our created universes, in our books, in our games, in the stories that we tell, and how we create gods. What does it say about us? I found a really interesting article about this, about the introduction of certain polytheistic deities into gaming worlds in the early 1980s. Fascinating story. Um, we'll talk about that next time. We'll see. Anyway, till then, um, talk to you all later, and uh, it's been great. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.